You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at CR's Northern Command in Maryland on this ridiculously hot late summer day. Um, It is late Tuesday, August 28th, and as promised, today we have another special episode with Jessica Vaughn to discuss what we can learn and what we should be doing as a result of the Molly Tibbetts murderer who was an illegal alien in this country um, working for a prominent Farm Bureau family, uh, very hooked into the farm lobby. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute. I just wanted to jot down some quick notes here. You know, Yesterday we talked about filling the vacancy in the Arizona Senate as a result of John McCain's death. Um, Mark Levin put out a brilliant suggestion. I, I, I mean, it is really brilliant on so many levels. Why not push for Zudi Jasser to fill the seat? He's from Arizona, Dr. Zudi Jasser, um, very accomplished doctor, Navy veteran, and he is a Muslim. He is probably the most prominent voice, despite the threats to his very existence, for a Muslim reformation, a reformation of Islam. Um, Imagine having the first Muslim senator ever in America, someone like Zudi Jasser, from day one introducing legislation banning the Muslim Brotherhood. Also, particularly from Arizona, being strong on borders, which he is. And he's not just like unusual because he's a Muslim reformer and is a Muslim who's a Republican, but he's actually anti-establishment. Um, talk about a guy with guts. I mean, again, you, you realize that the Muslim Brotherhood has put a fatwa on him, um, and he just doesn't care. You know, it's funny because Republicans are so into identity and everything. I mean, this would be a brilliant move. So I just wanted to pass that along. You know, yesterday I, I said I would like to have Andy Biggs in the Senate. If not him, maybe a guy like Shattuck or, or, or Salmon, former congressman from Arizona. But this would be a brilliant idea. Um, one other just um, show note here. You know, this shooter in Jacksonville at that video game competition, this 24-year-old um you know, once again, we see it was a guy who at some point was institutionalized. It's a mental illness problem, unfortunately. But this is a man who's from my hometown. He's from Baltimore. He's not from Florida. It turns out he purchased the weapon in Maryland. So, I mean, this nukes the entire, um, the entire thesis of the gun-grabbing left on, on shootings and mass shootings. Maryland has tougher gun laws than anything the left is suggesting to do at a national level. In Maryland, you have to, you know, anyone after 2013 purchasing a gun for the first time, 
you have to have a license not to carry. To carry, you can't really get a license at all in Maryland unless you, um, you know, unless you, whatever, maybe you own a business or you could show that you are specifically threatened by an individual or group of individuals. But otherwise, you can't carry. You need a license just to purchase. It's called an HQL. And based on this guy's age, it's pretty clear he would have had, you know, um, he he wouldn't have been old enough to purchase guns before or to begin purchasing his first gun before that law took effect. So that means he needed a license. So he got a license. And, and this isn't just some sort of rubber stamp. This takes a couple months. You have to um, have training and get a certificate from the, you know, um, certified trainer and all sorts of things, fingerprints and everything. So this is pure nonsense. It just demonstrates that there is no way to stop that. And then, again, how did he carry the gun across state lines? You can't carry in Maryland. Duh. The only people that those laws deter are those that don't plan on committing murder. I mean it's just so obvious, and it's it's funny just to reiterate – this law, I actually plotted it on a graph. Um, if you want to Google it, trying to see where this article would be. If you want to Google it, it would be the Baltimore effect, what gun grabbers don't want to debate. I have a graphic in there showing the spike in murders in Baltimore right after they implemented the toughest gun laws in the, na- in, in, in the nation. So I just wanted to get that down there before you forget the next time you debate your uh, liberal friend or, or relative on, on guns and crime and everything. Um, but you know what? Guns is a right. Self-defense is a right, and banning guns doesn't help. But immigration is not a right. That's an elective policy. And we shouldn't have a single murder in this country and other crimes – as a result of foreign nationals, because they shouldn't be here. And today I want to discuss why I believe that's true, why that's redressable through the prism of um, this Christian Rivera, the alleged murderer of Molly Tibbetts in Iowa. Now, Jessica Vaughn doesn't really need much of an intro. We talk about her, you know, most every week here. Someone I really look up to who's been doing this uh, really since I was a tadpole. She is the Director of Policy Studies at Center for Immigration Studies, terrific organization, one of the few um, good organizations working on policy on our side of the aisle in Washington. Um, In addition, she served as a foreign service worker in foreign countries, so really has a good grasp of data sharing and background checks and identity Um, and all the things we need to understand what happened here with the alleged murder of Molly Tibbetts and, you know, similar situations that we could redress. Uh, So with no further ado, Jessica, welcome back to the Conservative Conscience again. Thank you. So glad to be with you, and and you're too kind. I, you know, I I think it's great that we'll have this chance to talk because I, I enjoy reading your work so much, and so it's nice to be able to just have a back and forth and live. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, I um, I was inspired by a lot of your work that I saw during the Obama administration, and there was nothing we could do about it because obviously <laughs> nobody would listen to us. And I feel like now 
whenever I, I need a data point, oh, wait, wait a minute, why don't we deal with this? Uh, you know, I go back and find your work. So, um, you know, obviously we had this, um, this murder um, in Iowa. And, you know, for the most part, I don't even like delving into specific individuals. I know the family doesn't want to make it, you know, make it political. Um, and, you know, because really this is not about one person. Uh, just in fiscal year 2017 alone, ICE apprehended um, individuals who are aliens in total responsible for over 1,800 murders. Um, that was just one year of apprehensions. Every year they pretty much um, apprehend between 1,300 and 1,800 um, murderers. And this is a very pervasive problem. It's a very redressable problem. But I do want to start with the details here because I think – it brings up another a number of important issues. So, number one, um, I find the details bizarre. This guy Christian Rivera. It seems like that is his real name. Um, he was using a different, unknown or undisclosed stolen identity to make his rounds in Iowa, most prominently to get a job at that farm. Um, mm-hmm. What do we know now, a week later, um, and what surprises you most? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, this this case is interesting because it is a good illustration of many different policy issues that a lot of us have been talking about for a long time. And I don't think it's politicizing it to do a, a, um, an, like a, an in-depth analysis of what happened here. How was he able to get into the country? How is he able to stay here? How was he able to get a job here, and how did he come to be on that road when Molly Tibbetts was out for a run uh, when he killed her? And this is about this particular case in some ways, but there are so many lessons to be learned. And while it seems like this was a very typical case, it's also the worst-case scenario for what happens when we fail to enforce our immigration laws and we failed to have layers of systems that would work to prevent this from happening many, many times. And as you're so right, this is not an isolated incident. It's, not, it's far too common. And we need to make a big deal about it because, first of all, a young woman lost her life, but also because these cases and the identity and situation of the killers have been swept under the rug for so many years because advocates and apologists for illegal immigration don't want people to see this dark side. They want to see illegal immigration as something that is like a free lunch and unqualified goods, something you know, that benefits our country when uh, it, it simply isn't so. And, and so I, I I don't think it's politicizing her death to want to look at it and figure out how, not, how to avoid it. So what do we know that's new? Well, one thing we know is that, yes, he obtained his job apparently through identity theft now based on comments made by his employer. And the employer came out very early wanting to kind of, you know, like the same kind of move you see in a, in, um, in a, in a basketball game when there's a foul and the, and the perpetrator puts their hands up real quick and, so the, and looks at the ref like, I had nothing to see here. It wasn't me. I didn't do anything. They came out right away and said, oh, we ran them through E-Verify. Well, it turns out they didn't. They ran them through SSNVS. 
Uh, and he was, you know, his identity theft allowed him to get the job without. But now we're finding out in the last couple of days that not only did this uh, farm give him a job, it gave him and presumably other illegal workers a place to live. And a person who took care of those houses, it was a farmhouse and a trailer that this guy was living in. And so that also enables him to kind of be here hiding in plain sight, but off the grid in a way where he doesn't have to bother with signing a lease or getting a checking account or a bank account. He can, you know, he's you know, living off the books. Who knows what this employer was charging for these accommodations? But, you know, that's the definition of harboring an illegal alien, an illegal worker, and presumably numbers them. So I don't, I'm starting to think that this employer is not so innocent as they would like everyone to believe, and, you know, possibly prosecutable under 8 U.S. Code 1324, which says no one can harbor illegal aliens in the country. Sure. No, I mean, now that I see more of it, I agree with you. At first, I didn't want to, um, you know, toss any words towards the employer because I figured, look, you know, we do know most of them use stolen identities. And, uh, you know, if, if assuming they checked the status and it, it would have checked out with Social Security because it was a legitimate number if it was stolen. Um, but then, you know, I, I think you're right that if they were downright allowing him to live there, something smells very fishy here. Um, because the truth is we don't know if they actually use the system. We only know it from them. Um, right. This is a unique situation. So I want to I wanna illustrate to our listeners why even this, which is the toughest situation I've seen, um, is still redressable. So normally whenever you have illegal alien murderers, I mean almost every other time I could uh, remember, which – and this happens every week. We, we pass around emails, get stories. The um, Justice Department sends out a lot of emails. Um, they always have priors, and, and this is just basic yeah. criminology, even among Americans. I, I recently saw a stat that you know, 80% of those serving um, time for homicide in New York um, prisons uh, had priors. I mean, it's just obvious. You don't go from zero to 100. Usually, you are doing drug trafficking or at least drunk driving, assault, robbery, and then eventually they, they do murder, um, and – it th- that so that doesn't even need to be discussed. I mean, that is sanctuary cities. Mm-hmm. That's a no-brainer. Um, that is so addressable. Um, the minute they're detected for doing a crime, they should be out of here. Um, legal, illegal. Um, you know, unless it's a legal immigrant and it's a parking ticket or something. But you know, I mean, anything, anything serious for a legal immigrant, and really anything for an illegal immigrant, you could throw them out. In this case, right. it appears the government really doesn't know anything about him. That that he snuck in. Um, probably during the Obama Obama's tenure, um, among you know the teenage males from you know they were mainly Central America, but he was from Mexico, um, mm-hmm. seven or so years ago, came here, nev- was never apprehended, um, and they're trying to say, look, they didn't officially use E-Verify, but E-Verify wouldn't have caught this because it you know it was a complete stolen identity and it would check out but doesn't that implicate something else stolen identity that if we would actually deal with stolen identity we would be able to bust up even people like him and in fact deter everyone because if you don't have an identity you can't really do much of anything in this country well that's right it's also a sad statement to say that stolen identity can thwart 
our most important verification systems for workers and that if you know that it, it's occurring and that the government hasn't been doing much about it all these years even though we know that it's a huge problem and it's not that difficult to do either i mean the way to get around these systems e-verify and the so it's lesser known cousin the social security number verification system ssnbs uh, is to present the documents or even just tell the employer um, if, if they're unscrupulous uh, to type in a name, a date of birth, and a social security number that belongs to a real person. And if it's an, an employer just to, who's just checking the boxes, it doesn't even have to come close to matching the illegal alien's uh, identity in terms of age or ethnicity or anything like that. Um, or if you're really trying to fool an employer, you purchase a, a package that is a name, date of birth, and social security number of someone that you could pass for. And uh, it will, they'll put it through E-Verify and it will come back work authorized, work authorized because it's a real person. Um, and, and this happens millions of times in our country every year that people have figured out that this is the way to get around the system and they, and they use this not only to get a job but also to apply for driver's licenses, U.S. passports, welfare benefits, and any number of other privileges like voting um, that are you know, for U.S. citizens, but they're using the identity of a U.S. citizen so they can get away with it. And you'd think that the person whose identity that is would somehow figure out that someone else is using it, and sometimes they do. For example, when they get pulled over for a traffic ticket and get arrested because there's an open warrant out for that identity's arrest, or when they go to apply for uh, a, a mortgage and it turns out their credit's been trashed, or when they go to apply for a welfare benefit that they qualify for as an American citizen and they're told no because they have so much income because it's being used all over the country for other jobs. The federal government does almost nothing to police this problem. And those whose numbers have been used are not going to find out about it in most cases. But the government knows the name, address, employer of every person in the country in a case in which the same Social Security number is being used multiple times. And it doesn't I don't think it would be too hard to write a computer program to pick up those duplicates. I mean, you can do it in Excel. <laughs> Even I can figure out how to remove I mean, duplicates. You, you know this from, from your prior spreadsheet. work. I mean, this is something government's pretty good at when they want to be. Exactly, exactly. It's simply matching the numbers and looking at the cases to see you know, if it's plausible that the same person could be working in all these different places at once, on a farm in Iowa and also, you know, on a, in a factory in Maine. It, it, it's, it's not that hard, and yet it is very rarely done. But if it were to be done, then we would go a long way into to, um, stopping this nonsense that enables illegal workers to get employment. And who knows who else? There are lots of reasons that people want to commit identity theft and um, work in a different identity. They may be child molesters. They may be uh, people you know, who haven't paid their child support or whatever. Um, we need to do a better job to clean up these Social Security numbers. Yeah, no, and you're right. It's obviously – it's something we should be doing even outside of the context of immigration. But the reality is illegal immigration is the 800-pound gorilla in this room, and yeah. that is the linchpin to stopping it because, again, they can't – 
um, if, if we had a way of detecting that, they couldn't get a job, they couldn't pay taxes, they could I mean, the only way they could be undetected, I guess, would be is if they're literally living on a farm and the, and the employer blatantly breaks the law, blatantly, um, you know, just, you know, allows them to work without a social security number. They don't have a car. Right. They don't have Off anything. The book, completely. But, yeah. but that's not, I don't think that's quite what happened here. We, we still don't know, what, you know, what the employer did or didn't do. Um, but he did have the stolen social security number, which should have been found out. I, I've seen a report from the AP. Now, this was in 2004, but I'm sure the trends are holding that the IRS found 7.9 million W-2s is tax returns with the names that didn't match the social security numbers provided. And more than half of those were in California, Texas, Florida, oh and Illinois. Surprise! <laughs> you know, I mean, it, again, but, it's know, not exclusive, it be- but it's, you know... That's clearly a big share of the pie, no? Yeah, that's a huge number. Almost 8 million Social Security numbers that have possibly been compromised. But, you know, I, I think you are getting at the reason why nothing has been done about this. And that is because, because it would be so effective at stopping illegal employment. That is why certain members of Congress have been loath to make sure that these agencies do it. It's, this is like the, the dirty little secret of illegal employment is that the employers can get away with having illegal workers and pretend to know nothing about it because wow. they, the federal government is not doing this very simple um, stuff to, to correct it and to make it detectable. Is this more insidious than that? Is this, you know, we definitely know there's a direct pipeline from, you know, the the smugglers, the cartels crossing the border to identity theft, downright, you know, having the coyotes being associated with these criminal rings, giving them these identities. But does it run deeper to the next level that not all, but that some of these agricultural interests might be involved in identity theft? Well, that. it wouldn't be the first time for an employer to be directly complicit in it. Uh, there was a big case here in Massachusetts a number of years ago where ICE raided a factory that had a contract with the U.S. military to make backpacks and some other accessories that were used by soldiers. And they arrested 200-some illegal workers. Uh, and and what was going on since since they you know this is back in the days when they were allowed to arrest the workers which means that they talked to the workers and say how did you get your job and the workers said when i applied i was told that they would hire me even though i'm here illegally and they'd go up to the hr department and they would speak with the hiring manager and if they were here illegally she would send them across the street to a document vendor who would provide them with an identity and come back and reapply using that new identity. And so they, um, the Fed successfully prosecuted this hiring manager as well as the ID ring and the owners of the company because they all knew exactly what was going on even though you know, they tried to deny it. I mean, it, it was quite obvious that they were complicit. And it would not surprise me a bit if other major employers that are notorious for hiring illegal workers know exactly what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, because I have a hard time believing that this all happens organically. They have to be assured certain things that they come here. They know where to go. They know who's going to hire them. Um, you know, and and again, it 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 creates this massive market distortion when you have so many young males from countries with a very different standard of living, um, that are willing to work for a certain wage. It's they're going to be drawn to that, and at some point, it's it's pretty hard to claim, well, I, I didn't know he was illegal. I mean, you know, and that's why you yeah. wonder if they're downright, you know, sometimes giving them these identities. But what I what I feel is that, you know, especially from a free market conservative perspective, naturally, I would always want to um, place as, you know, small of a burden on, you know, job creators as possible. And to me, I don't, I'm starting to wonder, and I support E-Verify, but if you even need E-Verify, if just from the vantage point of the victim of stolen identity, um, government – I mean that everyone should agree. Government has – the federal government has a responsibility to protect that. And if we only required right. IRS and SSA to work together and with DHS to ping any anomaly without E-Verify, just you know, um, whenever it's being used, uh, if it's a duplicate, if there's some sort of anomaly with the ages, um, deceased – children, whatever it is, and notify, you know, investigate it, notify the victim, notify the employer, notify the local law enforcement. Um, to me, that would that would solve it all even better than E-Verify. But what I've noticed is it's not just that they're not doing that. What do you think about the fact that in addition to um, – and, and this was a 2017 estimate from IRS Inspector General. 1.4 million illegals use stolen Social Security cards to pay taxes. Um, 2.18 million used individual taxpayer identification numbers, the, the ITINs, to fill out um, a tax return. And they can't get the earned income tax credit, but they could get the refundable portion of the child tax credit. It's it's worth about four point two billion they estimated. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, That's real money. Yeah. So the IRS is exp- I mean, it's not just that they're not catching it; they're explicitly giving them an avenue to work illegally. But it's worse than that, Jessica. Aren't they in fact basically wink and nod, telling them steal social security numbers? Because even though they're not filing them with the IRS in those cases, as they are with the other one point four million, but if you're telling illegals to fill out a tax return with an ITIN, then you're telling them, well, you could get a job. That means you're telling them to steal a Social Security card, at least on the um, I-9. Well, that's why they have the I-10s. Is that, I mean, the IRS has always maintained that they, you know, they just want to make sure that everybody files their tax returns and pays their taxes. That's what you know they – they claim that's their excuse. We just want people to pay taxes for the money that they've earned. And so that's why they give out the ITINs, you know, because they think illegal aliens are going to pay their taxes. When in reality, it just gives, you know, if they can figure out a way to get a refund, they're definitely going to file. The ones who actually owe money, (laughs) if they were to report all their income, they don't file taxes. (laughs) And and Jessica, here's the funny thing about that. It's like, this is what I never understood. So half of the open borders lobby says, we need cheap labor. Oh, it's too expensive. Okay, so let's just admit, okay, you know, 
Fine. You want to hire them because you want to pay slave wages. Fine. Okay, let's be honest about it. But then the other half of the movement says, you don't understand. These guys are paying so much in taxes. Right. And anyone with a half a brain knows, and especially now after you know the, the new tax bill with the Rubio provision doubling the child tax credit, 60% increase of the refundable portion. Dude, I mean, forget about immigration among Americans. You need to be earning, you know, if you're a family of two, um, 60, 70,000 just to have a net positive tax liability. Right. <laughs> right. It's all their arguments fall to pieces in our, you know, somewhat socialized economy of the 21st century. It's just the way it is with the amount of benefits that are paid out and the way our tax structure is. It, the, the arguments in favor of, of mass immigration are just fall to pieces. It doesn't work. It's, it's a, a low wage. You can't have a low wage economy in a 21st, I mean, a low, yeah, low wage labor market in a 21st century economy. Like yeah, that, as, as they work. say in French, you can't um, half-ass libertarianism. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> right. you know, you got you to have the full full shebang, and, and that's really the problem. We get the worst of of all worlds. You know, I'm pretty libertarian on a lot of you know economic issues, and you know, I think you know I'm not running for office, so I don't mind saying uh, social security is of dubious constitutional uh, uh, foundation. But nonetheless, it is what it is. It's here to stay, and it's it's defines yeah. our identity government has a responsibility to protect that um and i think certainly in this case you know again we don't know exactly what they did and didn't do so we don't know for sure if e-verify would have vetted him out but certainly if you would require um notification and sharing between irs and ssa it, it likely would have i want to just before i let you go i want to move to the social aspect of this just this broader cheap labor thing. And and I think we already kind of touched on the surface of it. What, what, what I resent about this is this. You, know, you, you have the right to try to seek the cheapest labor that you possibly can. Um, but when you're traversing international borders, meaning in order to get that, you have to bring people in. You're not bringing in goods. Or, um, you're bringing in human beings. So you have the social aspect to it, the, the cultural cohesion, the and then obviously the crime aspect. So is this... What I'm starting to see a trend that, that I find disturbing is we have a crime problem in our urban areas, just organically. We have that, um, you know, that gets into the whole, you know, criminal justice issue. Um, a lot of people live in rural areas despite not having as many other perks, but it always had the perk of less crime. What I'm finding is that these people want to say, I have the right to slave labor, so just let me get what I want. When you're dealing with human right. beings, there's a society that's over, you know, and beyond the the wages you're paying them, and that's they have to live there now as human beings. Right. So These are externalities, but many, we're talking about people in the community. So, so isn't yeah. this creating, you know, when you see violent people like that brought into a tiny town like this, are are we seeing this as a trend that it's not just Baltimore, Boston, Philly, Chicago, but we're now having problems from you know, criminal aliens in, in, you know, rural areas that were pretty shielded from this. There's no question that that happens. And there's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, I've certainly seen it in other scenarios. Um, for example, you can track the growth of uh, gangs like MS-13 into rural areas because uh, they, they move there. They know there's a community of 
farm workers there who are in the country illegally, and that's a market for them to sell drugs and prostitutes and other things that go on. And, I mean, it, it's, it's, I've seen that happen even in rural Vermont when certain farms started using a lot of illegal workers on the dairy farms and doing the same thing as this uh, Iowa farm situation, putting them up in farmhouses on these properties to live in you know, pretty crowded conditions, but there they couldn't drive. So then um, they started, someone figured out that they could, that the drug dealers could come to the farms and do business there. And then they moved into prostitution. And the next thing you know, it's kind of spilling over into the, these communities that had never had problems with drugs or prostitution before. And it's a result of bringing in a, a group of young men who are isolated and in a community that they're not familiar with, nothing good happens in situations like this. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like going out after midnight in the city. It's, it, there are going to be problems, and that's not to say that all of these farm workers are, you know, um, are bad people, but it's the situation that they're in, and it's human nature, and, and there are criminal organizations that are going to take advantage of this situation. Um, it's it's just asking for trouble, and it's a problem for these communities, and it started with the tolerance of illegal immigration. And, and that's what bothers me here. It's not organic. There's nothing natural. No. This is not what Adam Smith would call the natural order of things. Um, you wouldn't – you know, normally you become part of a community, and then you know it's it's organic from bottom up. But if you carte blanche open up a meatpacking plant and just bring in several hundred, if not thousands, of people from young males from the most violent countries. Now I'm, I'm looking at the top twenty now. Honduras is one. El Salvador is two. Venezuela, which we've been getting a lot more of recently, is number three. Um, Guatemala is seven. Even Mexico is is nineteen. Um, well, I mean, you take the most violent population of the most violent countries, they're not all going to be that way, but you know, the numbers being that large, you're going to start growing those elements. And, um, that, that's, that's not like, Hey, none of your business. I'm just, uh, trying to run my business here. Right. Um, Illegal immigration brings a criminal infrastructure that supports it. And that criminal infrastructure is, you know, it's criminals. And so they're going to bring other problems with them as well. And the employer should be held responsible for that. No, absolutely. I mean, th this is something that just, um, it, it shocks the consciousness that something that should not be partisan at all, identity theft, um, is just, it's not being dealt with. I mean, and, and, you know, it's, uh, this is already out of the news. I don't see any evidence. Anyone in Congress is going to take this up for the remainder of the year. Um, even though Republicans in particular badly need an issue to, um, you know, try to even up the election, and they just they just won't do it. And I guess that's the thing, because if you actually address this, it would literally end illegal immigration. Um, there's, it would be very difficult for any of them to actually come here and, and, and get any benefits. Uh, but, right. you know, you know, Democrats don't want that's that. That's why we should do it. And that's why we should <laughs> do it. But then, you know, they're, the, the ag lobby is really um, – really very powerful um i just want to in this context if you could explain because i know you've given congressional testimony on this before in the context of identity theft could you explain why in this 
you know, issue more than almost any other issue, state-federal cooperation is a match made in heaven. Um, you know, you saw the feds had the name of this guy right away, even though he evidently yeah. wasn't using that name his entire time here. Well, that's, that's true, and, and that's why um, E-Verify, while it is an extra task for businesses, is, is appropriate. Um, the federal government is the entity that can determine the immigration status of people in this country, not the state government, not a, not a business. That responsibility for immigration enforcement rests with the federal government. Now, they are not the ones who are most likely to encounter illegal aliens in the community. That's going to be local authorities, perhaps local, local police or a local employer. So we have to have a partnership between locals and the feds for this to work effectively. We don't want the federal government to have to go around um, you know, patrolling workplaces or our communities and looking for illegal aliens. That's the way it used to be done. They used to call it area control, but it turns out not to be the most effective way to do immigration enforcement. We need to have uh, everyone be willing to cooperate with the feds to get this done and not put up barriers to the flow of information between local, state, and federals. In other words, they're they're going to apprehend the guy. The local people are going to be the ones seeing the guy, but they don't know – I mean – who's who they don't know what he right. really is this guy let's say his name was juan martinez and what i found astounding is despite the government being in the dark more than ever i've never seen a case like this they still can't pinpoint when he came in because he literally came in undetected never got a driver's license the only thing was this um employer but what was amazing is once the local cops announced i'm assuming they called them up and said yada yada was arrested and and meaning not christian rivera it was a different name they had that name right away so they're able to get that they have that expertise yes that's right i I assume that they found out about him because he was fingerprinted and while um ice only has the um, files on people who've actually been encountered by immigration at some point in time which apparently this guy had not um, they still could tell that he was not in the country legally because there was no record of his legal admission, either a, a visa or a green card or anything like that. So I, I'm wondering if he had Mexican identity documents that they were able to quickly verify you know, through the Mexican government to ascertain his true identity. And, and that's the thing. They have all the foreign relationships um, – Right. Just through the State Department and every, everything that the locals don't have, and this is why, this is why it's so important that you know you could just stop all this. What I saw recently from your um, your neck of the woods in Boston, the the Boston Ice Field Office put out a report a couple of weeks ago, um, showing that just in one week they just took a one week sample from this past spring, and showed that 456 criminal aliens were arrested by Massachusetts authorities, yet ICE was only able to get fewer than half of those um, thanks to the lack of cooperation, and a lot of them were drug traffickers and and people like that, which makes me wonder, we're having this big debate over how much crime they commit, how much crime do illegals commit. 
Um, and I think, again, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out when you have a lot of young males from the most violent countries, you're, you're going to have more criminality than, than the mean um, crime level in America. But, um, you know, I look at ICE numbers and I see, you know, again, almost 1,900 murderers apprehended in one year. Um, thousands upon thousands of assaults, um, sexual assaults, uh, 70,000 drunk driving incidents among them. Uh, 40 or 50, or I don't have it on me, thousand um, drug trafficking incidents. Isn't it safe to say these are just the ones that ICE apprehends, but in the cities that have most of the illegals, most of them are sanctuaries, and they're releasing a lot of these people, so they never even get a hold of them. Oh, that's absolutely true. They're often uh, you know, released or cases dismissed. They try to broom them right out of the system. Um, because they they just can't prosecute all of them. Uh, I mean, with those numbers, it's it's absurd to try to make the claim that illegal immigration is not increasing crime in the places where they're concentrated and all over the country. Because it's, as you said, more people coming in of a certain demographic. Um, it's inevitable, and it is a lot of it is swept under the rug, um, either because of sanctuary policies or sanctuary attitudes among judges and others in positions of authority that, you know, they're not going to throw the book at somebody because it might get them deported. Or there's also all these cases of people who are arrested and, and, and bailed out and then just don't show up to ever be convicted, even though they did commit the crime. They just take off for another community and mm. the case is never solved. Um, it's, I, I've seen it. Um, said that in many large cities with a lot of illegal aliens, the uh, non-clearance rates, unsolved crimes uh, among that the believed committed by illegal aliens are higher than any other you know type of of crime. Um, you know whether it's homicide or assault or robbery or whatever. If an illegal alien committed the crime, it's that much less chance that they're actually there's actually going to be a conviction because they take off. Um, more likely to than Americans living in that community. Well, so Chicago is yeah, the big the big culprit there. Um, almost eighty percent of the homicides go unsolved in recent years. Um, and and you know it's funny you just mentioned bail. Uh, I was just dealing with this uh, yesterday. It is, there's a bill literally on Jerry Brown's desk. Governor Jerry Brown of California just passed the legislature to abolish bail. I mean, this is just a general, you know, aside from immigration. But again, in California, that is the you know ground zero for illegal immigration. It has by far the most illegal immigrants. That's where you're going to have a, a lot of the criminal alien crime. So now you're not yeah. even going to have you have um, bail there. So by definition. You know, when you look at the ICE apprehensions of criminal aliens, which seem pretty appalling, it's just scraping the surface. You know, I'm looking at right now um, the you know the secu- comparing secure communities to the Obama PEP program, and you know even under Trump, where we we restored it, um, we're up to maybe you know less than two hundred thousand ICE apprehensions a year. You look at the peak of secure communities before Obama shut it down. You know that that was like you know some years up to four hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to me, I would you know that tells me if you didn't have sanctuaries and you had their ability, 
um, we'd have even to, to apprehend them. You would have even more criminal aliens apprehended. So there's likely more. I'm also looking at the um, outcomes of deportation proceedings of immigration judges. And again, there's something about your hometown there. Um, judges in Boston seem to the Boston uh, Immigration Court seems to have an 80 percent rate of um, uh, letting them go. 80 percent rate. Um, this was, you know, wow, that's pretty scary. Yeah, New York and Boston were the big, um, uh, you know, places D- during the Obama era. Um, you know, the an amount of cases dismissed surged from thirty to fifty percent. But again, in some of those big sanctuary areas, some of it might be the politics of the type of judges we appoint there and, and who live there. But in New York and Boston, it was it was close to eighty percent. Um, well, yeah, this is the problem. The sanctuaries are in the places where they, where the most illegal aliens are. And so they're, the, the policies do the most damage that way, you know, except for places like Texas and Georgia. Sure, um, sure. Texas and Georgia, obviously, right. they, they have a lot of illegals. They cooperate, which is why we have more data. But, you know, like, you know even as I mentioned to you yesterday um, when we were just talking offline, I, I was saying, well, I know there's clearly, I mean, Two, probably two, three times as many criminal aliens as indicated by the ICE apprehension numbers. Because again, by definition, they're going to be in places they don't cooperate. But at least as it comes to homicide, you would believe that, yeah, we probably, you know, ICE is probably going to get them. But the more I think about it, I look at some of your old data from when ICE itself under Obama, not just the local sanctuaries, but ICE was releasing criminal aliens. They were releasing those convicted of homicide too. <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's incredible. What, what possible reason could there be to do that? Um, it, it's just uh, there's no reason to let someone who's been convicted of homicide out in, you know, onto the streets. And, and at one point I thought it was because of this problem of countries not taking back their citizens for deportation. I thought, wow, well, they all must be the so-called Zavidas cases where they just can't deport them, so I has to let them go. Mm. No, it turned out that these were, sadly, discretionary releases where ICE chose to let them go. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it, it just is mind-boggling that they, you know, they, you know, they will go to any lengths um, sometimes to come up with a justification for letting someone go under those circumstances, but it's it's a huge mistake. No, absolutely. Um, one final thing, just do you have any updates for us on the actual border surge? Um, you know, it, it really heated up throughout the spring. Um, it seems like the numbers tailed off a little bit the last two months, although they kind of did shift from UACs to family units. It is the yeah. hot summer month, so, you know, the baseline itself goes down. Is, is there any news on that? Well, the, the Border Patrol is really good about putting out monthly statistics, and it's, it's hard to put too much stock in you know, month-to-month trends because they're affected by seasonal changes as well as policy changes. But it does look like the zero-tolerance policy did have some dampening effect on the number of crossers coming. And you're right, the number of UACs has gone down and the number of family units was going up. Um, I, I think that that for all the criticism, um, this policy of family separation and, being, and, and narrowing the grounds for asylum is starting to 
um, work its way into the consciousness of prospective illegal immigrants, and more people are, are deciding to stay home instead. They're seeing what happened, and they're also seeing that, you know, these families that tried it, you know, even if they were reunited with their kids, they were sent home, and so the whole thing was for nothing. And that's, you know, it sounds harsh, but we want people to see that there are consequences for taking this journey. Shouldn't risk their life savings and their safety to try to come here illegally and and ask for asylum because it's it's just not going to work anymore. And so I I predict that we're going to see a continued dampening of the numbers because of this whole episode that we went through this summer and all the attention on the policies. Um, And despite the best uh, efforts of some of the judges um, to you know to stop deportations of these individuals in this class action suit on the family separation i i think most people are going to get the message that it's probably not worth it and uh, fewer people are going to start coming and and so it may turn out to be a success in the long run well ho- hopefully so and and as we started the show out with you know it it all gets back to their the magnet and the single biggest magnet the more i learn about this i think even greater than birthright citizenship, K-12 through education, sometimes in-state tuition for college education, um, all the welfare benefits, is really the ability to get an identity. And, you know, I'm just thinking now with the UACs, teenagers, um, you know, who come here often, some of them wind up being farm workers, some of them um, just do other things. But the reality is, uh, I remember seeing, and I think this was from your outlet put out years ago, Center for Immigration Studies, um, Eight out of the ten states with the highest percentage of illegals in their population are among the top ten states in identity theft, and Arizona right. alone had over a million children who were victims of stolen identity, more than four times the national rate. I found that very interesting. It is interesting, and it was a problem in Utah also, and the reason for it seems to be that um, you can figure out which Social Security numbers have already been issued, there's a protocol to how the Social Security Administration does it. And so certain document uh, fraud rings and ID fraud rings figured out numbers that were not issued yet and sold them to illegal aliens for the purposes of employment. And then a few years go by and people have children and those numbers get um, awarded to those children. And then they discovered it because some of these families, um, the children qualified for welfare benefits like Head Start programs, and their parents would go to sign them up, and they would be told that they were not eligible because they had $30,000 of income on the Social Security number you know, from working in a McDonald's in California or something. <laughs> and so they discovered this huge, there were thousands of um, children in Utah and in Arizona whose identities, whose Social Security numbers were sold to illegal aliens for employment. Wow. Now, I mean, I think this really brings the conversation just full circle to, to end it off here, that, you know, um, when you're talking about this new wave with the UACs or mixed in with the families um, and all the things we can and should be doing to deter it at the border, um, but if you just did this alone, it would institutionally uh, just uproot the entire uh, premise for coming here of course, until a judge says, you know, you can't clamp down on identity fraud or something, but uh, who knows? Um, Jessica, 
I give could talk time. to you forever. <laughs> yeah, give him time. I could talk to you forever, but thanks so much for Likewise. the generosity of your time. Looking forward to having you back again. Thank you, Daniel. Good to talk with you also. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Jessica Vaughn. I always love having Jessica on. She's just a wellspring of information and knowledge. And I really appreciate the the time that she spent with us today. And, and that's the thing. I'm going to be working on a project to better quantify the illegal alien crime wave. Um, you know, again, if I tell you, prove to me that the color of the sky is not pink. Well, it's kind of hard. You know what I mean? It, it, it's obvious from what we know they commit more crimes. The problem is that we don't track the data well. A lot of states specifically don't. California is 800-pound gorilla in the room, and they certainly don't have the data. Even states that track citizenship status mixed together um, illegal and not and, and uh, you know um, legal immigrant. And the problem with that is most legal immigrants still commit much fewer crimes, as they should. I mean that's one part of immigration that is still working that um, – you know, we, we check their background out before they come here. We, we vet them. So, you know, most criminals are career criminals, especially violent ones. So, you know, and, and then if they do change their lifestyle and they start committing crimes, we should throw them out. Now, there's way too many we don't throw out. The number should be close to zero. And there's particular, um, you know, there's particular parts or, um, you know, subsections of legal immigrants that do commit too many crimes, while others, such as from Europe and India, commit a remarkable, a remarkably low number of crimes. So, you know, that's you got to target the problem. And, and, you know, it's not politically correct, but the reality is that, um, you know, the crime rate among certain regions are going to be more. But generally speaking, overall in the pie, illegal immigrants commit much fewer crimes. So you have that data mixed in, but if you were to isolate illegal immigrants, it's obvious it's higher. I mean, that that's the point. 1,800 and change homicides in just one fiscal year were apprehended by ICE, most of those likely being illegal immigrants. There were 17,000 reported homicides last year. Illegals account for, what, 3.5% of the population. That's already 11% of the homicides. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you know, those were the homicides committed that year. They, a lot of those homicides could have been from previous years. We just apprehended them. But the thing is, it's a rolling thing every year. Every year, ICE apprehends roughly that number of um, murderers or aliens. So it's not just like, oh, in FY 2017, they went out and did enforcement against this. They do this every year, so it's an apples-to-apples comparison. It's a tremendous amount, and like we spoke with Jessica, this is likely a fraction of those that are truly problematic for two reasons. One in general is that certainly as it relates to the assaults and drug traffickers and drunk drivers and really many other very problematic people – the numbers are exponentially higher than the numbers in the ICE report because these are the people they got a hold of. The sanctuaries won't give them over. Six out of ten illegals in this country live in 20 metro areas. Almost all of them are sanctuaries. I don't have the exact number offhand, but it's very 
I think someone has quantified this, but it's very likely that well over half, if not you know, more than three-quarters of illegals live in sanctuary jurisdictions, which is obvious. So, so the, the numbers of, of criminals ICE apprehended, the number of crimes committed by all of them is tremendous, but it, it's a fraction of what it is. We don't, we don't have a lot of California data. And even though most – if you're just tracking a homicide, you would imagine after they committed the homicide, a known homicide, most of them would be apprehended. That is true, but you know some aren't, and moreover – as Jessica was mentioning, most of the sanctuary cities, just because of their general criminal justice to foreign policies, have a very low clearance rate of murders. Meaning, you know, obviously um, we we apprehend, gosh, I don't know, we wind up solving, I think it's 58% of murders nationwide, 58% clearance rate. But in some of these cities, like Chicago, it's 20%. So there's really so many more murderers that are not being apprehended. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, the same way there's more illegal murderers that aren't apprehended, so does the pie grow as well, the number of the broad population you know that we don't catch. That's true. But I want to posit that it's more lopsided to illegals because it's more in the places – that are sanctuaries and that have a high population of illegals that have unsolved murders, and those are the places where they're releasing your, you know, aggravated assaults and and uh, drug traffickers and people like that. So if you have a lot of murders that are going unnoticed or certainly unsolved, unapprehended, unarrested, unconvicted, they're often going to be these people that have a a career, a life of career crime, violent crime. And that we know we have them being released. It's hard to quantify this. That's the problem because the government doesn't want to find out. And it's particularly, you know, it's a catch 22 because the areas that have the most illegals don't cooperate with us, not just on, um, you know, just enforcement, but but even on data, data gathering. So so that's that. Um, I got to run, but there's one thing I want to end the show off with uh, just to circle back yesterday. You know, I put out an article today we'll link to in show notes that, you know, about this legislation, 10 prominent Republican senators introduced to preemptively salvage the mandates of Obamacare, the regulations, in case this case in the Northern District of Texas and eventually the Fifth Circuit um, somehow strikes down portions of Obamacare. I, I just want to make this this point. I know I made it yesterday, but I want to make it a little stronger. To demonstrate the Orwellian degree of perfidy from Republicans, not just on health care, but on the courts. Think about it. Just yesterday, I'm sure some of you saw, for like the third time, the Fourth Circuit, it's a mixture of the district and Fourth Circuit, a panel of three judges, so-called struck down the congressional district maps of North Carolina for the third time. Um, we, we had a Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest on the show a couple times discussing this. And, you know, again, these were districts that were twice upheld by the state Supreme Court. They were pre-cleared by Obama's DOJ. 
And basically the court just says is if they don't create enough Democrat districts to our liking, they're somehow unconstitutional. And they went and said that they might force them to redo the districts now, not not just for 2020, for now with what, you know, 65 days left to the election when the primaries were already done pursuant to those districts and the campaigns, the money spent, the canvassing. I mean, do you understand how insane that is? Why am I bringing this up? Well, A, it's important in itself to understand the the fact that, you know, the, the devastating effect of judicial tyranny that it literally is handing Democrats a permanent majority. But Tom Tillis, the very junior senator from North Carolina, is the lead sponsor of this um, Save Obamacare bill from the courts. Think about it. This little bastard has seen his state be savaged by the Fourth Circuit. You name it. Photo ID. Um ballot harvesting, which is a whole criminal enterprise that, that the state tried to prevent, all the election laws, the transgender stuff, anything the state tries to do, the Fourth Circuit has has went after. And there's not a single piece of legislation from this puke to protect his state. Suddenly, God opens the mouth of the donkey, quite literally here, and suddenly he finds a case where he's suddenly concerned about judicial overreach that they might strike down Obamacare. The one thing he'll go to battle over with the courts is to protect Obamacare. So after the courts, even even after they already definitively gutted marriage, religious liberty, immigration law, election law, abortion regulations, religion, you know, you name it, transgenderism, no, no desire to have a judicial fix. But when it comes to Obamacare, he's willing to preemptively on the small likelihood, small chance that it might, the courts might strike it down, he introduces legislation to preempt it. Folks, that is the Republican Senate for you. Until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.